it's a, it's a pleasure to be back with you all, um, and amongst friends uh, from near and far. And so, uh, it, thank you for having me again. Um, as I was thinking through uh, our time this morning, I can't help but notice the fact that our country is one who is trying desperately to find something to rally around. We're, we're trying desperately to find something to bring us together over lines of difference, and uh, I think we're looking everywhere besides to the one place that can actually do this work. And so thank you, sister, for reading the passage for us, because I think our answer is in that. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Revelation 7. We'll be in verses 9 through 12 today. Let me start my clock so I don't get excited and go too long. So you guys see I have this counting up for me so I don't uh, linger long. But um, yeah, so if you have that passage open, um, as I was preparing to teach this passage, um, I was going through one of our rituals that we have at our house, you know, the bedtime ritual. And I was, you know, part of that is bath time. We have a couple of little girls and uh, our, our kids, they have these little foam letters that sort of like float on the water. They get really dirty and they put them in their mouth, you know, but that's besides the point. But one day, I remember teaching our, our second daughter, I said, this, this is, these are letters and numbers. They have names, uh, J and H and K and, and so on. And I said, and, and it's fantastic. But when you bring them together, they actually make larger words too, like mom, dad, sister, brother, Jesus. And then we started like making all these words. And so while each letter has its own value, it has its own name, but when you bring them together, they're worth far more than the sum of their parts. And I think that's what we begin to see in this passage today as we talk about all these different types of people joined before, before the throne of God. But as we transition to looking at the passage, what we'll see is that there is a divine mastermind that is trying to bring us people together in this tapestry-like masterpiece. But unlike the letters that I was manipulating to show the different words to my daughter, us as people are a little bit more stubborn when it comes to coming together. And so what I would like to do is, you know, give us a greater vision of why this is even important. Give us a greater vision of what Christ has done in order to make this reality uh, among us. So... What then has the ability to bring us together? Well, I think we see it here in this passage. But before we jump into marching through the clauses of this text, the book of Revelation in general, I know it's scary and people have all sorts of graphs and like, you know, they're counting beans and stuff like that to figure out like all the timelines and everything when in, in Revelation. But in the end, what we can say that the book of Revelation, if we can just dumb it down a little bit, is to inspire us to faithfulness by giving us a glorious vision of the kingdom. And so the context of our passage today in verse 7 is following the ceiling of the 144,000. We see that in the first half of chapter 7 uh, of these 12 tribes. And this passage chronicles those who will come to Christ beyond the Jewish community in our passage today. So it's important that what we see is Americans are not at the center of this passage. I think all too often, and this is as an American speaking to Americans for the most part, 
I think we have a tendency to throw ourselves right into the center of everything. You know, if, if you watch news here in this country, who are they going to talk about? We're going to talk about us. But if you go watch the BBC, if you're in the UK or something like that, they're talking about stuff all over the world. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing for us to see that the gospel was for the Jew first. And then we have been grafted into this wonderful plan through the blood of Christ. And now that should reap in us this sort of debt of humility, this gratitude that should just be overflowing from this. And so the key to this text is that the people of God praised him by proclaiming God's truths. And it's important enough to stop here and pause and to see who is there and who's proclaiming this because there's a lot of difficult things that happen in the first six seals. And so God is saying, you know what, let's pause real quick to say despite all that's going on, I'm still with you. I'm still caring for you to both those who are the, the 144,000 who are Jewish and the rest who are this untold multitude who are not Jewish. I'm still here with you. I'm protecting you. Even amidst all the calamities, I'm with you. So let's look at this worship scene that is proclaiming and declaring the glory of God. So as my sister already read, I'll read the first two verses again. And after this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, and this is where it gets good. Salvation belongs to our God who's seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So I just want to walk through these clauses of these verses. And in the first one, it says that there was a vast multitude that nobody could number. So John is delighted at this, I'm sure. John is delighted to see to to see this untold number of people, this multitude, and it's even in contrast with the 144,000 before. This is indicative of God lavishly pouring out his love and his grace over all types of people. And I think what's also at play, perhaps, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. You guys remember in Genesis 22, verse 17, when it said, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. And I think as an aside, what we can see is that we serve a promise-keeping God. Even though this promise was made in Genesis, we're now in Revelation chapter 7, we see God is keeping his word, and here is the people you know, uh, yes, there's the, the 144,000 uh, of, of Israel, but it also is expanding beyond that. A, tri- a multitude that no one could number. And they were from every tribe, or nation, tribe, people, and language. And so what's, what's interesting here is that I think we all might assume, or at least I have, before I really dug into a passage like this, that when we get to heaven, that we get into the kingdom, we all just drop our distinctions and we all just become the same, take up the same culture. But in this text, it demonstrates that that's untrue. All of our wonderful uniquenesses that God has given us stays intact. What we see here is God is not a tribal deity. So it's, it's, it's not that God is captive to a single culture. And I, I guess I can say it differently by saying that there's no single culture 
that has a corner on faithfulness to Christ. And while we often say amen to these things, it's difficult because we often assume that our worship expression is superior to those who are not like us. And so I often like to say this, and I know I'm in a room of coffee connoisseurs. The gospel is like a coffee bean. You're like, what? (laughs) The coffee bean keeps its integrity no matter where it is in the world, but it takes up the soil, the flavor of the soil that it's planted in. Is that right, Tracy? Amen. Some love Colombian coffee. Some love Guatemalan or Brazilian or Ethiopian coffee because they taste different, but it's still obvious that it's coffee. This is what the gospel does. While there is this identifiable husk in Christ that this takes up the soil of whatever is there. Granted, it, it, it sort of corrects things that are ungodly in every culture, but it affirms and beautifies and enhances those things that are glorious to God. And so this is what we're finding. These people from all tribes and tongues and peoples and language, they're standing around the throne, and it's wonderful because I think God is actually more glorified because the people who were scattered at Babel are now brought back together under our Lord. God does um, redeem these cultures, bringing us together. And I think it's almost like, it's almost like a choir. I like when a choir sings in unison. But when a choir is singing the same words, but they break into parts, it's almost, it's a whole different experience. And it's almost like if we were all in the kingdom and we were all the same, speaking the same language, we all looked the same, we were all dressed the same, and, you know, who knows how we're going to be dressed, but you know what I'm saying? If, If we're just all the same, it would almost be like watching TV in black and white. But then, if you introduce the every tribe, tongue, language, people, it's almost like we break into parts and we are glorifying God, and this scene is far more great than if we were just all uniform. The glory of God is seen over all cultures and all throughout creation. So they were uh, there as a multitude. There was a whole bunch of different types of people. And there, the, the text continues, it said they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands. And so this scene is reminiscent of the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus was made or made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Palm branches were waving and leaves were being strewn down in the path before him as he rode in the city on his humble colt. But equally important to their placement before the lamb and their attire, which is what they were wearing, was their declaration. And that's the next portion of the text. It says, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. Only Christ can bring people So many people of so many types together. It's important that we notice that in this declaration, salvation doesn't belong to any of the groups who are seated or who are worshiping before God, but it's to God the Father and to the Lamb Jesus who died and who was slain and who is now risen, and he is the object of our worship. So oftentimes we look for very superficial things to bring us together. 
whatever that might be, if it's our political affiliation, our geographic location, the types of schools our kids go to, and the list goes on and on and on to the things we look towards or look to to bring us together. And I hate to say that Christians often do the same thing. We often look to Jesus plus something else as a unifier. So we look to Jesus plus some of those things that we listed already before, our cultural interest, our hobbies, our favorite teams, or whatever it might be, these shared experiences. But oftentimes what we find is that whatever we add to Jesus begins to exclude other people from participating in Christ together. And so the reason why I even point this out is because I have my own Jesus plus experience. I was relying on my own wit, my own ability to bring people together, and I actually destroyed an opportunity for people to come together in unity. So I remember I was on our campus, and by God's grace, we have uh, lots more different types of people from different backgrounds coming. And I was talking to one student, and he and I were talking about the atonement of Christ And how glorious it is that Christ died and he rose and it was fantastic. We were just having a wonderful conversation about this. And then in a different scene, fast forward a couple weeks or however long it was, I was talking to a a, a different student and she and I were talking about how wonderful it is that the gospel is applied to every part of life both public and private, and some of the ills in our society are being healed by the gospel ultimately in the kingdom. And so I had these two wonderful conversations. But one day I was walking to our student center, and then both students sort of came to me at the same time. I knew that one had interest in a certain thing, and the other had interest in another thing. And I was just very sort of like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What what are we going to talk about? This is awkward, right? What could I say in my own wit to bring these two people together? And so I did what many of us would unfortunately do, at least if you're, I'm just going to bring you into it because you can't say that you do otherwise because I have the microphone. So I did what many of us would do, and I just got out of the conversation as fast as possible. So I was walking back to my office like, oh, that was a disaster. But then it struck me. We're both, or all three of us, were children of God. We, I didn't have to manufacture anything to bring us together. I didn't have to be winsome and try to figure out how to bring and weave everyone together because all I had to do was begin to talk about Jesus. We have Christ in common. Church, if we can't look to Jesus plus nothing else, maybe our Christ is too small. So I think that what we're seeing here is that we have Jesus And Jesus alone, that is bringing people together. This is what uh, Ephesians 2 was talking about when this dividing wall of hostility was dropped. And now the gospel has the ability to bring people together. And the thing is, they were worshiping God. They were exalting him. What do you do when you are with people? You're like, I don't even know what to talk about with you. Let's talk about Jesus. Anyway, I'm going to start... Getting, getting a little excited. So this worship at the throne, I can't even imagine the scene. Can you guys imagine this? People from all over the world coming together. I mean, it's going to be crazy. I mean, it, it, I, uh, I can't even get my mind around this scene where we're worshiping God. 
in our own languages, and we're all exalting him. And you know what? I think we can learn something now that we are going to learn in the future, which is how to worship together. I'm sure that we're going to see our African brothers and sisters or our uh, Australian brothers and sisters, and, you know, and, and we're going to learn from them. We're going to see how they're worshiping, and it's just going to be a blessing to us. And I think we can even begin to do that now. Broadly speaking, I've, I've been in several different types of churches, and I've, and I've been in some churches that are more subdued and some that are more expressive. And you know what? And I think that these two groups can actually learn something from each other. Because, you know, iron does sharpen iron after all. And I think that there's something to be learned because I've learned from being in both spaces. So I'm going to tell you sort of what I've learned from the different groups and then hopefully as a sort of a precursor to helping us to be, be of the posture to experience the, the worship of, of our brothers and sisters as a wonderful sort of addition to our own worship and this sharpening and this enhancing of our worship sort of continues even on this side of the kingdom. So in more subdued uh, worship, these churches have a strong intellectual tradition of focusing on the knowledge of God, which is a good thing. And there's often a controlled environment that generates the opportunity to dwell upon God and the glory of God publicly in a manner that's respectful and in order, you know, in, in line with 1 Corinthians 14. But the temptation amongst these believers is that their, their, their view of worship that is less structured is less God-ordering. If it's more spontaneous, more spirit-led, it's lacking in reverence. And on the other side, for more expressive worshipers, there is uh, this often birth in traditions where there's a lot of pressure, a lot of you know, external pressure pushing in on people. So this internal spiritual reality that's having to fuel them during difficult times sort of explodes into the worship moment. But the temptation amongst those believers is to question the more subdued worshipers. Have you actually met this Jesus that we're singing about? Because when you sing about him, you just seem so ho-hum. So what, what I think is that there can be some mutual encouragement that happens here. I think uh, Matthew 22 is helpful when we see that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart our soul, and our mind. This shows us that you know, we ought to use worship with the totality of ourselves. And I think this is where we can begin to find some help here. So the more subdued crowd can be encouraged to cultivate their faith beyond the cognitive and engage with their soul, which is this, you know, said to be the seat of our emotions in worship. Those who are more expressive worshipers can be encouraged to engage their mind to know more of the God that they're worshiping. And so, and I think that if you actually got into the same room, if you were actually looking to the best of what is going on in the worship of your brother and sister who's worshiping differently, then there actually could be something gained, something gleaned from each other. So, and if you don't do it now, it's going to happen in the kingdom so you better get used to it. So that's just your forewarning. So we have this whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of places with one message, and that salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb.
And so again, as we are in a culture, and even in the church, we're looking for something to rally us around all these different fissures, political, racial, economic, and the list goes on of things that can divide us. But I think we have the answer here. The answer is Christ. And so what we're going to do is transition from these first two verses to the second two verses, 11 and 12, and I think what it offers us is sort of a recipe of worship. Sometimes if you're like me, it helps to have like an outline. What stuff do I say? Like, for example, in my conversation that I referenced, well, I, I needed something to, to, to latch onto. What elements can I talk about in this situation where I'm so different than somebody? Well, we can talk about our Savior. And here, I think in verses 11 and 12, we have this catalog of these elements of praise, which is uh, actually the benediction of the great multitude from chapter 10. This ignites another response of of an angelic group that highlights this glory of God. So this is kind of a recipe, for those of you who like cooking, of worship. And so verses 11 and 12 say this, All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, they fell, down, or they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forevermore. Amen. So let's look at these elements individually. So we have amen. Oftentimes we just assume that this, this word is just like a filler word, but amen is is both in response to this group that's already been worshiping God together from every mul- this multitude, but it's also the beginning of another set of worshipers, these angelic hosts. And this is fantastic because it sees, we see that the glory of God is being acknowledged in the kingdom by those who are angelic, yes, but also people from all over. And it's just sh- seeing that the glory of God is going to be manifest all over. When you say amen, you're saying so be it, or I agree. And so as we are in the kingdom, and now we're supposed to be practicing what it's, life in the, or what it's like in the kingdom, we can say amen, or I agree, when somebody, no matter what their background is, no matter what tribe or multitude or tongue they are, if they're saying something true about our God. So learning to agree together in the characteristics of God is key. So amen, and then also blessing or praise comes from this word that's translated from, or that is translated eulogy, which means to speak truly or rightly of someone or something, praising God by speaking the truth about him and all of his divine perfections. Again, if we're looking at this scene, this multitude, where we're trying to figure out what in the world can bring us together, when we start saying true things about God, when we start blessing God together, this is the activity that we do together that can actually bring us together. The next word is glory, which refers to the splendor of God in his divine presence. So in Exodus 24, when Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain, it's somewhat like the glory of God was dwelling there, but the people couldn't see it. And what we see now in the kingdom here is that the presence of the glory of the Lord is like a devouring fire atop the mountain, but it's no longer hidden. It's in, our, it's in plain sight now. We're going to have the opportunity to worship and glorify God 
forever. And it says, and wisdom, after it talks about glory. Wisdom is basically summarized in the fact that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And our pursuit of God always starts with fearing the Lord. And that is wisdom. That gives us wisdom. And so our, 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 our pursuit of wisdom actually begins before Jesus himself, crying out, first of all, to, you know, to him that we are a sinner, but then continuing in his presence as we do this Christian life. So Christ is not just the beginning of our, the gospel in Christ is not just the beginning of our faith, but it's what we continue in to find wisdom, to live out this daily reality of being made into Christ's image. So also thanks. So what we're seeing here is that we should give thanks to God. And this idea of this, the thanks is translated Eucharista, which is where we get the, the term Eucharist or Lord's Supper. Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving feast, which is the supper, will just commemorate this until the Lord comes. This is centering around the broken body and the shed blood. And, uh, and basically, we're just giving thanks to God for his finished work among us. Again, these are the elements that we can begin to uh, center ourselves around, the activities that we can center ourselves around, agreeing with each other, talking about the characteristics of God, pursuing the wisdom of God together in our daily lives, thanking God for all that he's done, and then also understanding his power and strength. So power and strength of God is evident in his sustaining work throughout all creation because in him all things hold together. So, and I know this seems like a sort of these, these elements are just there that they give us in their angelic worship service, but they're elements that we can all hold on to. And things we can do together as we're with people who have been uh, from different places and different tribes and tongues and languages. So, as we come to the end of this passage, I think it's often the, the case in the church today that we look at something like the, the, the fact that these people were from all sorts of places, and we make that the focus of the passage. We make that the focal point, and we spend so much time talking about what we should be doing to garner that people, or just even amongst each other, that we miss the point. The point here is that Christ is the one who brings us together. And then even in this, uh, we're going to have moments where our rough cultural edges, the edges of our difference begin to rub up against each other. But just like in a marriage, when that same thing happens, because you guys know marriage is for our sanctification, right? And so when our rough edges begin to rub up against each other, you just don't bail and run to your corners. What we do is stick with it and you work it out. It might not always be clean. It might not always be cute, but you're better for it. You're more like Jesus for having stuck in there. When we are trying to do this work of mirroring the kingdom now, when we're trying to bring people who are, are different backgrounds together, we're going to have those moments where it's awkward. We're going to have moments where these cultural edges begin to rub up against each other when you have communication loss cross-culturally. But when it gets awkward, don't just retreat to your corners, but that right there is what God is going to use to make you more like him. So when you see a people of God who have been able to come together on this side of eternity, who actually are reflecting this picture in some way, 
it's, it's what you're seeing is, yes, you're seeing the work of the gospel made manifest because you're seeing people brought together because the dividing wall is, uh, is leveled between them. But more importantly, you're seeing a people who are sanctified, a people who have been able to have the humility to hear someone else and understand them and consider them as better than themselves. This work that this pursuit is trying to do is to make us more like Jesus. That's why we're talking about this, this uh, multitude that no one can count. That's why we're talking about all these different people because we're not only worshiping Christ, but we're becoming more like him. And that's actually what allows us to do this work. So, and I say that at the very end to say, if we're looking at the people who are there and our focus is not on Jesus, but on trying to create this multitude without the Jesus, it's not going to work. And in fact, the only way that the people can come together and stay together is if they're focused on Jesus and they're becoming more like him because of the time spent together. This is what the beauty of all this is. When we want to talk about worship and the glory of God, our worship is aimed at Christ. Understanding his finished work on our behalf and then just singing his praises singing of his glory, and doing that together. And that is what has the ability to bring us together. So this passage is wonderful. I love all of the big, grandiose picture, pictures that we see here, but I'm so grateful for the opportunity to do this, to pursue this even now. So I just want to say a quick prayer for us as we sort of transition to the next part of the service, that God would give us the grace to see Christ to have Jesus to be big enough to be the thing that grafts us together from all types of places, all types of people, from different languages and tongues and walks of life, because the gospel is the only thing that can actually do this work. So if you bow your heads with me, and I'll just voice a prayer for us.